Well, it's an honor to get to dive into God's word together this morning. And I'd like to share a message on a scripture passage that has been challenging and convicting me in my own life uh, as of late. And I trust that by the illumination of the Holy Spirit and his word, that there's also something for, for you in it this morning as well. Um, but before we open God's word, let me just say a quick prayer again, and then we'll dive into the message today. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you that we can be called your children. Jesus, we give you thanks that you made a way possible for us to be in right relationship with you, and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to be in right relationship with each other. Please open up your word to us this morning. Instruct us, correct us, encourage us, and transform us by your word so that we can become more like Christ today than we were yesterday. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can open them there or follow along on the screen in a moment. Um, Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6 and I'd like to set the stage by doing a bit of a flyby summary of what's been happening in the first three chapters of Ephesians um, to set the stage for where we're at today in chapter 4. So Ephesians is a two-part letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison to the church in Ephesus which was a Greco-Roman port city uh, and a major trade center. In the first part of the letter, chapters 1 to 3, Paul explores the story of the gospel. He makes a case that all of history comes to its climax in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the head of this new multi-ethnic community called the church. This new family of God no longer is um, limited to only Jewish bloodlines. Rather, it includes people from every culture and every tribe and nation. And in this new family of God, you will encounter people who look different from you, they live differently from you, and here's the challenging one, I think, that crosses generations, people that think differently than you. In the first part of the letter, Paul also reminds the Ephesian church that um, he reminds them just how much God loves them, and he reminds them just how amazing his gift of grace actually is. And I think sometimes we who have been Christians for a while um, kind of get used to the good news of the gospel, right? We might tend to forget in our day-to-day lives just how amazing God's grace really is. And so Paul was reminding the Christians in Ephesus of this. Remember, guys. And so I think we also need to be reminded of this regularly. And so let me just read a few snippets from those first three chapters uh, as Paul reminded the Ephesians to remind us. In in, uh, chapter one, he says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family, bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. Before creation, God has chosen you and decided to adopt you into his family. Paul goes on, he says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us. He's so rich in kindness and grace 
that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave us our sins. He says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan, and it's this. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. In chapter 2, Paul says, God is so rich in mercy and he has loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sin, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And he reminds the Ephesians, he says, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved and you can't take credit for this. It's nothing that you or I did that deserved that. It's a gift from God. And then in chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would continue to want to know God, to really know how wide and long and high and deep God's love really is for them. Why? So that that love would sink in and completely transform who they are. And then we get to our passage today, which is the beginning of the second part of Paul's letter. It's the application part. And it starts with the word, therefore. In other words, because you and I are recipients of this amazing love of God, because you and I have heard the good news of Jesus and are now part of his, Paul, his family, Paul says, therefore, and then let's read chapter four, verses one through six. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Let's walk through that text together. In verse 1, he says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Because you and I are recipients of the gospel story, therefore, our lives ought to be utterly changed, completely transformed, and totally shaped by the gospel. It should influence every part of how we live individually, in our families, um, at work, school, in our communities and church, and as public citizens, whether that's in person or on social media. Yes, you are still representing Jesus on Facebook and Instagram. So how do we do that? Paul says, live a life that is in line with this new identity that you've, you've been given. He says, you have been given a new identity. You belong to a new family, the family of God. And so Paul says, live a life that is in line with that new identity. So how do we do that? Well, that's what he's going to spend chapters 4, 5, and 6 on. And so if you want a great read this afternoon after lunch, I encourage you to do that as your homework. Read through chapters 4 through 6. What does it mean to live a life worthy of your calling? Today, we're going to focus just on the first part because I think... It's timely for us, and it's the part that also convicted me a lot recently. Verse 2 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 
That verse has been working on me a lot recently. This last year and a half has been quite the whirlwind, has it not? It's heartbreaking to to hear and see what's happening in Afghanistan or that Haiti is yet again affected by another earthquake. And then there's this COVID-19 pandemic that is looming over the entire planet. And we feel the strain on our mental and spiritual health from all of the restrictions on social gatherings. We feel the strain on and the uncertainty and confusion around even the most recent public health orders. Many feel economic hardships that this pandemic has caused. This last year has been political unrest in the US, political frustrations here in Canada, and a rising awareness that there are many things deeply wrong in our world. Racial injustices, environmental concerns, other concerns, and we're trying to figure out how do we as Jesus followers respond faithfully to what's going on. People have really strong opinions, right? Um, Masks, vaccines, this, that. People have very strong opinions on a lot of things these days. And all of this has created a lot of points of disagreement among people and a lot of tension. And in turn, this tension and strain has made us tired less gracious with one another and divided. And this division is not only something that's happening out there in society, but what's most concerning is that it's dividing families and it's dividing church communities. But tension is not new to the church, um, nor is disagreement, nor is it new to any community of people, right? Tension, disagreements, and conflict are not in and of themselves bad, nor can we always get rid of them as much as we would like to. Reality is, anytime you have two or more people together, there will be a diversity of thought with different perspectives, and that will eventually lead to some form of disagreement. But notice what Paul doesn't say. He does not say, you know what you guys need to do? You just need to agree on every issue, cheer for the same sports team, Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, go Blue Bombers. There's a big game on this afternoon, but nobody cares, except for me and maybe Kevin. Um, You don't have to cheer for the same sports team. And he doesn't say um, that we should all just, you know, minimize truth and say, let's just call it agree to disagree. He doesn't say that either. Paul is an advocate for truth. He pursues truth. He doesn't seem to shy away from conflict if you've read all of his letters. So this is not just about avoiding conflict or agreeing on everything. What Paul is concerned about is how we as Christians navigate disagreements and tension. And he's saying it ought to look very different from how the world navigates tension and disagreement and conflict. So how does the world navigate these things? How do they navigate conflict, disagreements, and tension? This is not an extensive list. This is just one that I've been observing as of late. Um, But here's a few examples of how I see people navigating conflict and disagreements. First one is passive-aggressively. People throw snide remarks at one another. They use sarcasm to take a little jab at one another. 
Social media is pretty toxic for passive-aggressive conflict. And I get it, right? It f- you think, oh, but it just feels so good to post a funny, sarcastic meme about a group of people that I disagree with. And sometimes these types of comments and memes may even have some truth in them, but they're communicated in a way that is condescending and insulting to those that we disagree with. Another way that people respond is aggressively. People often let their emotions get the best of them, and disagreement can turn hostile either verbally or physically. And at this point, people aren't really arguing ideas anymore. They're attacking each other. And then a more um, a big one today is called cancel culture. This is a term that's used to describe uh, when we ostracize someone who we disagree with, often publicly or in a group or very commonly on social media. It's a way of thinking that says, if you disagree with me, that means you're against me, you're not for me, and we can have no fellowship. It's a way of thinking, if you can't see my way of seeing things, then we can't have any relationship. Cancel culture humiliates or seeks to shame others, usually misrepresents the other's view, and it's tarnishing to another person's reputation. We seek to silence their voice and exclude them from any kind of relationship that we have. Paul says later in this chapter that this is not how Christians should navigate tension and conflict and disagreements. This is not how those of us who are in Christ ought to treat one another. And yet, sadly, too often, and I have been guilty of this as well, this is what we do to each other sometimes. And to this, Paul reminds the Christians, don't live like you used to. Don't return to your old sinful self. That's not you anymore. Put on your new self in Christ. And then he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. And so rather than mimicking how the world deals with disagreements and tension and conflict, Paul says, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, even making allowances for each other's faults. Why? Because of your love. And so I want to expand on each one of those because I think these four virtues are vital to a life that is worthy of our calling, especially, I mean, across time, but maybe very timely for today. So let's walk through those three virtues, four virtues. Be humble. Humility was not considered a virtue to the ancient Greeks, much like it is not really considered a big virtue in our Western world either, right? One commentator um, that I studied, he points out that the word here translated as being completely humble It focuses actually on one's way of thinking. It means lowliness of mind as opposed to haughtiness or arrogance. And the best example we can find in the Bible on being humble is in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. If you want to check that out later today, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And this is where Jesus is described as emptying himself for the service of the least, sacrificing his life for sinners, And because we are followers of Jesus, 
humility is an irreplaceable part of the Christian calling. Um, A pastor friend of mine, I don't think they gave me permission to quote them, so I'll just say, I'll leave it vague, but a pastor friend of mine was reflecting on how people have dealt with each other through this pandemic, and it really stuck with me what they said. They said, I see Christians sincerely wanting to be humble before God, but completely lacking humility for one another. What might it look like to walk humbly before God and before our brothers and sisters? I think it might mean something like seeking to understand others before needing to be understood. I think it means caring for the well-being of those that we have different perspectives from. I think it means pursuing fellowship with those who also claim Jesus as Lord, but maybe vote differently from you. Maybe they have different concerns than you do. It means to serve those that we actually have disagreements with because we're a church family. Gentleness, that's the next one, a virtue that is largely forgotten and quite often minimized as not being as important of a virtue as other Christian virtues. And yet, gentleness shows up regularly in Paul's ethical lists. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul points out that gentleness is actually characteristic of who Christ is. What might it look like to practice gentleness during tense times? I think it means to choose our words wisely, to monitor the tone with which we communicate with others. Maybe it means avoiding starting an argument on Facebook and rather meeting up for coffee with that person. It means to think twice before posting a meme on social media, which may be truthful, but maybe is not gentle or kind or loving in any way. See, truth should be communicated. I'm an advocate for communicating truth. I don't like it when people are just like, well, let's just, you have your opinion, I have mine, and we'll just call it truth is relative. No, I, I actually don't think that. I think truth should be pursued. And there are times that we need to challenge each other and spur each other on toward truth. But truth can be communicated harshly in ways that will not be receptive, in ways that will demean another person and humiliate them, or it can be done out of care and love using the the virtue of gentleness. What good is it to say something truthful but in a way that completely lacks gentleness? I don't think you're going to get a receptive audience. (laughs) For example, I'm thinking of Maybe you're on a job site and there's a new employee and he totally butchered his first day of work, maybe his first week. Something needs to be said. Now you could go up to that person and say, you're a complete screw up at this work, you suck. Or you could say, hey, I realize that you're new at this job. I would like to help you improve in some areas. Can I show you something? Which one do you think will be more receptive? Probably the one that says, let me help you out, right? Or when we come to disagreements, sometimes we say, when we hear something that we disagree with, we say something like, that is the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. 
Or we could say, you know, count to 10, take a couple of breaths and say, thanks for sharing your perspective. I think I understand where you're coming from, but I disagree. Would you be open to hearing my perspective? Which one invites conversation? Which one is going to be receptive? One of those responses inflames, demeans, and insults, and one is likely to be received. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. I think too often we skip right over the word gently. <laughs> the next virtue is patience. It's also repeatedly present in Paul's lists of virtues. Um, Klein Snodgrass, super cool name, he's a Bible commentator, uh, and he says this about patience. He says, patience is the exercise of largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. I thought about what that actually looks like, and I had a perfect example. A few weeks ago, we came back from a road trip to Vancouver with a one-year-old and a four-year-old in the car the entire time. And I could say that I had a lot of exercise enduring annoyances and difficulties over a period of time, eight hours to be precise. Let's face it, if you have been part of a church community for, oh, more than one Sunday, you will have plenty of opportunities to practice enduring annoyances and difficulties. It does not come naturally to most of us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, which means that it needs to grow and develop in our lives, and it's something that develops and grows as we practice it. That classic tale of asking God for the gift of patience, I've realized in my 30 plus years of life that he doesn't actually give me patience, he gives me opportunities to practice it so that that virtue will develop in my life. How do we practice patience when in disagreement? I think one of the ways that we can exercise patience is knowing simply when to speak up and when to hold your tongue. Um, I read some really good advice, advice a while ago. It said, before you say something to someone, so presuming that you're going to have a bit of a confrontation or disagreement uh, or something needs to be said, before you say something, ask yourselves three questions. First one is, does something need to be said? Yes or no. Second one is, does it need to be said by me? Yes or no. And the third one, does it need to be said by me right now? I think this little self-evaluation might help us toward being patient with one another. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. The next one is putting up with each other in love. The, the New Living Translation, which I read from, says making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Uh, but as one commentator says, a more appropriate translation is actually putting up with each other in love. He says the Christian life is a life of putting up with one another. And this tolerance finds its ability and motivation in what the Bible calls agape love. 
The Greek word agape is a type of love. Agape love is not a feeling or emotion, but it's an act of the will. It exists only in relation to specific people. So it's easy to say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbors and keep the neighbor part pretty vague, but agape love has to be specific to people. So fill in the blank. Who is that person that maybe you don't have a feeling or an emotion of love, but God is actually calling you to make the choice to love? It exists only in relation to specific people, and it says, and it is always costly. Agape love is not something we create out of our own motivation. Rather, it is a choice we make because of the love of God in us. I once, I never quite understood what that meant because when I have a hard time loving someone, I don't know how I can conjure up love for that person. And I talked to an old wise man. He was wise because he had a gray mullet and a handlebar mustache. That's how I discern what wisdom is. Um, but he was a lifelong missionary. Uh, and we were working together uh, and there were some really difficult people. I was just biting my tongue and I could just see that he treated people well, even though he was probably annoyed and uh, was having a difficult time liking them too because of what they had done. And I just said, like, how do you forgive someone for doing that or this or that? He says, oh, I can't. (laughs) But he says, but God can. And because God's love lives in me, he says, I pray this simple prayer. I say, God, I can't love this person. I can't forgive them out of my own strength. So please, would you forgive and love them through me? And that changed, that started to change the way that I think about how agape love works. Being honest with God, saying, I can't do it, but I know you're calling me to it, and I believe that your Holy Spirit will give me the power to do it. Choosing to love, can you put up with the person you have some heated disagreements with? Can you worship next to someone who votes differently than you do? Can you have fellowship with someone who also claims Jesus as Lord, but may have very different views on a lot of other secondary issues? The love that we experience in Christ has to become something that is extended to others. We don't just receive, we're not the end recipients of God's love. We are to be channels of, that spread God's love in us, through us, towards others. It is not a feeling, but a choice, and it is always costly. Um, Klein Snodgrass, this commentator, he says that Christians are to receive one another, to think about one another, serve one another, love one another, build up one another, bear each other's burdens, submit to each other, and encourage each other. That's a tall order but we can ask the Spirit to help us do that. Finally, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Unity is kind of an elusive word, right? And I don't think it is always possible to maintain. There are times in which maybe theological differences between people or communities are so significant that they infringe on core convictions of what it means to follow Jesus. There are times when a church community has discerned as a community 
what their theological positions are on a number of things. And if a member no longer is able to submit to that communally discerned uh, position, maintaining real unity with integrity becomes difficult. Maybe not possible always. But there are many, many times when disunity happens over disagreements that do not need to divide us. And as a general rule of thumb, Paul urges the church to make every effort to keep the unity in the spirit. Um, These Bible commentators, they say, unity is not something we create. Unity is a gift that we receive from the spirit. Our job, our mission, if we choose to accept it, if we want to be worthy of our calling is to make every effort to maintain this unity, to maintain that gift. We do this by being humble, gentle, and putting up with, one, putting up with each other in love. Why are we to make every effort to maintain unity? It's because we actually belong to one another. We've been adopted into one family. And Paul goes into that in verses four to six. He says, for there is one body and one spirit. That person you disagree with, if they love Jesus, they have the same gift of the Holy Spirit as you do. And so you are actually family, (laughs) is what he's saying. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So to wrap up, would we be a church community that practices being humble before God and before one another? Would we be gentle with one another in our disagreements? Patient with each other, especially in these times when we are all tired and a little bit more on edge? And would we put up with one another's faults because Lord knows I have my own faults too? And would we choose to extend love that we have received from Christ to one another? And if at all possible, would we invest our energy into maintaining the unity that we have with one another, seeking to live a life worthy of our calling? Amen.